Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Dr. Zahn Van Tulliken is a much-loved medic, broadcaster, and someone who has first-hand experience of the impact of COVID-19, both personally and professionally. In spring 2020, Zahn contracted COVID while preparing to film a documentary about the virus with his twin, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. Zahn isolated at home for two weeks, but continued to experience strange symptoms, including heart palpitations. When these worsened, he rushed to University College Hospital, where his twin brother was working on a COVID ward, and had to have his heart shocked back into a normal rhythm with an electric current. I was keen to talk to Zand about his experience of going so publicly from presenter to patient, and he's also someone who has witnessed more than his fair share of sadness. After training in medicine at Oxford and specialising in tropical medicine, he worked during the genocide in Darfur and in various humanitarian crises all over the world. So here we talk about all he's learnt to date and how he copes now. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I would love to ask, first off, how are you after the year that you have had? Oh, yeah, I should be better at answering this question, I suppose. I, like, I know that I should have a... Basically, I only ever answer it in two ways. I either go, I'm fine, which is the sort of normal thing at work. I think people at work only ever want to hear that you're fine because otherwise maybe you shouldn't be at work. But I suppose I have a specific problem, which is that I have an arrhythmia with my heart after I got COVID. And so I take pills for it and I have to have a procedure. I have to have an operation to try and freeze a scar into my heart to stop the irregularity in the rhythm um, coming back. A year ago, I had never been ill really in my life. Like I maybe I had tonsils out when I was a kid, you know, nothing else. And now a year on, I uh, like you have to sort of adjust your brain to going, oh, now I'm now I'm someone who takes pills and, and has a health problem, which is very annoying. And it's it's already stopped me filming a thing which I desperately wanted to film. You know, the vomit comet plane, the anti-gravity flights. Oh, okay. So there's a plane that does like it flies up, up very high and then dives. And then you're effectively in zero gravity. for You're in free fall for a short period of time. And I've always wanted to do it. And I couldn't do it because of my heart. It was very annoying. Sorry, you're getting a long, I feel like you, you of all people have probably given me permission to give you a rather waffly answer there. But basically, I'm sort of all right. Like I'm all right compared to I'm fine. I can work. I'm okay. But I'm a bit different to the way I was a year ago. So I was reading before speaking to you today, reading back about what had happened. And you can tell it far better than me, but if you wouldn't mind kind of recapping, because it was about a year ago this week that we're speaking that you ended up in hospital. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I suppose this is the the one year anniversary of it. So I, I had COVID and I found COVID to be quite unpleasant but it was okay for about 12 days. Like I was getting better and I had a high fever and I was anxious because I knew a lot of people had got really ill and I live on my own. And I think it's a virus maybe more than other acute viral infections that makes you a bit emotional. This is just my my personal feeling, but I, I was in tears a lot of the time when I was acutely ill. And then I, my brother would phone and try and be nice to me and I'd get really leery with him, which wasn't very nice. 
Uh, but anyway, I was sort of getting better and I wasn't, but I had a cough, but I wasn't too short of breath. I'd lost my sense of taste and smell, but that seemed normal for that. At that time, we knew about that. And then I woke up at three in the morning and I instantly knew that my, my I, I knew that I had a thing called atrial fibrillation because it's quite easy to diagnose because your heart is irregularly irregular, meaning it's just, it's just chaos. Like you can't tap your feet to it. You can't tap your foot to it at all. And so um, the problem with that is that the blood can pool in one of the chambers in your heart, which isn't really functioning, and then it can clot, and then it can send a, you can get a stroke, basically. Uh, you can send a clot up into your brain from your heart. And so I thought, I don't want that happening. And so I went to hospital. How did you get to hospital? Uh, I called an Uber because, uh, because it was that period in London where you just heard ambulances all the time. And maybe I'm just, I mean, obviously you hear a lot of ambulances anyway, but it felt to me like there was a huge demand for them. And I was not, I felt ill, but I sort of thought, well, I know what's going on. I, I know that I need to go to hospital and have it managed, but I'm actually not so acutely unwell. I can't get there myself. So um, that was okay. And then it happened three more times. And they kept saying, no, it'll go away. It's just acute COVID. It'll be all right. And then eventually they started me on some drugs. And that's pretty well controlled. So now I now I have not been to hospital since, which has been really good. Okay. When my mother found out I was speaking to you today, she was very concerned because she saw the bit where your heart was started again. Is that the or put into a normal rhythm again yeah, on TV? Yeah. And she saw your brother be very sad. And <laughs> I wonder how that was for you watching that and how it was for your family watching that. Well, it was it was funny because I mean, there's sort of a strange thing where if you I did have my heart restarted. So they give you it, it was the thing that you see on the telly that the moment of high drama in all kind of medical TV shows and movies where someone's heart stops and there's a flat line and the machine goes beep. You know, you get that sort of bee and then kajung the thump and then the heart starts again. And there's that sort of moment of pause where you wonder if it will start. And so all of that really happened. But my heart had not stopped. They stopped my heart with the shock. And it would be very surprising if it hadn't stopped again. But my brother didn't like to see it, which is understandable. But it was a complicated thing to put on the telly because I was sort of, I mean, I was as, as ill as I looked in one way, like we weren't making it up. But also there are more dramatic uses of that technology where you like zap someone's heart. But anyway, Chris filmed one of the episodes on his iPhone. And when I came around, I'd had a bunch of ketamine. And so I came around and was being quite fun with everyone and sort of giving the anaesthetist a load of commentary on how he looked like Dominic Cummings. I mean, the whole thing was quite weird. And so we'd had a real laugh about it watching that footage. And then when you see, I hadn't realised how upset he was. And so when we were sent the rough cut for the film, which we just wanted to watch because it was all Chris's colleagues and, you know, people we've worked with for a long time. And we wanted to make sure they were shown well, but we were never meant to be like particularly the stars of the show. And suddenly it was all about me getting ill and my parents were watching it with us and they got really upset and the whole thing was a bit of a disaster. That's a tough one. And I wonder as well, you mentioned you, you were alone and you were isolating alone. That must have been fairly challenging as well. I mean, that's it's a tough year for everyone. People have missed human touch, but has that been difficult being ill in a time when you're not can't be with other people? I think I remember being on my sofa and crying and crying and crying and feeling very sorry for myself, but also looking around. I live in a nice, comfortable house that in fact had just been decorated, like the painters had left. And so 
everything's nice, right? The sofa's nice, the cushions are new, the fireplace works, the telly's brand new, like everything is comfortable and good. And I remember, this maybe sounds very sanctimonious, but it's really true that I just thought, oh my goodness, I've got it as good as anyone on their own could possibly have. And I was still feeling sorry for myself. But I could, I was definitely also then feeling sorry in a way that I hadn't before for all the people who were just at home enduring COVID on their own. And that was a, that was a big thing that to get an ambulance at the peak of COVID transmission in London or sort of the peak of the burden on the NHS, to get in an ambulance and go to hospital, you virtually had to satisfy the criteria to go straight to intensive care. I mean, it was you had to be so ill for them to bring you in. So there were loads of people who are much more ill than me just, just kind of coping on that brink of like, you might die, you probably won't, but you might not be okay, but you're going to have to just manage and be, have that horrible shortness of breath and fever and you know, even if they were with somebody else, I think people were just coping in desperate situations. I mean, one of the things about the clinic that looked after me was that they they really actively reached out and tried to find those people and went, look, you never came to hospital. A lot of them never even got a positive COVID test. But can we now have a chat with you and make sure you're OK? Because you've been really ill. Like at any other time in history, they'd have been straight into an acute medical ward and possibly in a high defence unit. And talking about those people, I mean... The, you spoke to a care home manager, didn't you, who spoke very powerfully and movingly about watching her charges dying painfully away from families. That must have been incredibly, you know, eye-opening. I think you described at the time that the, these were deaths that needn't have happened. How do you reflect on that now? Yeah, I think, have you had relatives in care or spent any time in care homes? No. When I was a kid, I guess when I was in my teens, I volunteered. I did community service and I did it in a local care home. And I, I but, but these were... I don't know. I, I remember that very clearly, but it didn't. I suppose I was young and I just hadn't spent that much time thinking about care homes. And what struck me as extraordinary was that the lady I was speaking to had come from the Philippines. She'd been in the UK for a long time, but, you know, most of her family were in the Philippines. And I just thought, wow, if you sent me over to the Philippines and I was working in a care home there, I hope that I would look after people in the way that she did with. I mean, proper love, right? We asked if we could film in one of the rooms that was empty because so many people in the home had died. And she said, yes, you're welcome to film, but I can't go in. And we said, oh, why not? And she said, well, it's it's too much for me. And and she said, this patient was the first person I ever admitted to the to the home. And he was my patient and he was someone, it was a home that was not, a, you know, most people were being paid for by the council. They didn't have any friends or relatives that were supporting them. And she said, I was his, you know, I, we, everyone in that care home in Peterborough were his family. And I think maybe even working in healthcare, I just assumed that, health, you know, care homes had quite a high attrition rate where they were quite used to losing people. You know, everyone in the care home is at the end of their lives. And she said, maybe we lose one or two people a year. And suddenly out of 18 patients in two weeks, seven of them or 18 residents, seven of them had died. Wow. And those people had died alone. You know, people with severe dementia who would normally sit in the garden and hold someone's hand and get all that comfort that that, that the world sort of reassures them they're okay, even if their memory isn't working well enough to quite understand their situation. And suddenly they're literally locked in a room and everyone they're used to seeing is wearing masks and visors and goggles and gloves and aprons and face masks and all this stuff. And it was just the most 
I don't know, even though it had been in the news, actually going into the building to me was just the most appalling thing. I mean, you just couldn't, how we could have let people have such an appalling time and like such a long end to their lives of misery where you, you might have had months of isolation and confusion followed by a death from COVID on your own, you know. Do you think that there's been almost a sea change in in the relationship between, I guess, the medical profession and sadness or emotions? I spoke to Adam Kay before the pandemic and he'd just recently released This Is Going To Hurt and there was a real sense that, you know, junior doctors perhaps weren't supported and that, which I, I suspect is very much still the case, but also that when you advanced in the medical profession as a doctor, there was a sense that you were liable to suffer from compassion fatigue or that you just had to get the job done. And I wonder whether the past year there's been such an outpouring of emotion, there's been such respect for nurses and such respect for all members of the profession. Are we getting a little better at that, do you think? That's really interesting. I don't know. There's quite a fundamental problem that in any room you're in as a healthcare provider, where you're midwife, nurse, doctor, HCA, you are in a way the least, your emotions are the least important of anyone in that room, that the, the patient is at the centre and the patient should be allowed to kind of dump whatever emotions they need to outwards, that you can't say to the patient, look, come on, cheer up, stop being, you're getting us all down, you know, and then, so then, but then the patient's family, the patient's loved ones, they're, they're important. And then on the outside of the circle, you've, you've got healthcare providers. And so you go from one room to another and correctly, you cannot prioritise yourself. But actually, and I think Adam Kay made this point, it was the first time I'd ever seen it written down, that your healthcare provider may be having a worse experience of your illness than you are. And that feels like such an uncomfortable thing to say. And I suspect he could sort of say it because now he's a writer, a comedian, a performer, um, but he's not he's not a practicing doctor, so he has a bit of distance. And I feel that way as well. I'm not, I'm not practicing anymore either. But I... I think that there were definitely nights where every patient I saw, for instance, in A&E on a Friday night, if you just saw, you know, we would see everyone you'd see would be drunk, they'd be injured as a result of alcohol, that would be the problem. But these were short-term fixable problems. But at the end of that shift, it was quite, you know, you'd have been abused and you were very tired and so on. And so that fundamental problem is still there. I I don't know. That said, when I was in A&E, I just felt that, I mean, this, it's difficult to not talk in cliches, especially at the end of this year, but I literally have a lump in my throat thinking about the nurses that looked after me at the Homerton and at UCL. I, I, I cannot, I know there's the sort of view of sort of nurses as angels is a sort of common trope in, in films and art and so on, but I, I literally imagine them with halos. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and not, I mean, it is ridiculous in that, like I did that job, you know, like I was the person who was in Did you any, have a halo? If, no, yeah, well, of course, I, the, the point I wanted to get onto is what a hero I am. Yes, <laughs> yes, quite, quite. Underline <laughs> we, that point. I think the main, the main point I would like the listeners to understand is my own heroic activities through my life. No, I, but that's a job that everyone signed up for that job. Everyone wanted to do it. It's a hugely rewarding and, and exciting job. But it does take a bit of an emotional toll. I don't quite know how I think the NHS is is more valued at the end of the year. And my goodness, the nurses' salaries. I mean, but I said, I tweeted and said, make them vote on nurses' salaries now. They, I guarantee the government will not raise the salaries. And sure enough, in real terms, they've got a pay cut. Yeah, it is pretty shocking. And it does feel... 
do you have do you have any kind of hope for the future of the NHS? I mean, if people are not feeling valued, I guess I think that there is this huge collection of forces that are pushing the NHS out of existence. Right, that there are. If you want to dismantle the NHS and make money out of people being ill, there are loads and loads of small, medium-sized, massive corporations trying to do that and all, in all sorts of ways. You know, healthcare staff can also be co-opted into that, right? Like you can get paid more, that works a bit easier. It's nice to work in the private sector. You're still doing healthcare, you know. And so all of the stuff that erodes the NHS is quite vague, quite small, quite difficult to identify. And just cheering for the NHS is a is a big complex messy thing that's quite vulnerable to criticism and so i think if you if you want it to keep existing it's very easy to imagine a world where it would stop existing i mean i lived in america for eight years and that's the worst healthcare system in the world by a million miles rwanda has a very much better healthcare system than america does even the rich people are not getting good care in america all the time and even if they're getting the best drug and the best surgery they are not getting the system that they move through is designed to extract profit from their illness. So I, I would say there is a real threat. That, that There is definitely a real threat. Loads of people would like to dismantle the NHS from large portions of the media to American insurance companies. So if you want it to stick around, I, I don't know if, you, if, if people vote the way that they do at the moment, it is possible to imagine the NHS will be like a font. You know, like that reassuring blue and white NHS font that'll be the NHS and it's just a badging of a private company. Okay, so that's terrifying. So everyone needs to vote very carefully. Sorry yes. about that. No, that's okay. It's I, good. I think, you know, and if you want to vote conservative, you can. Like the, 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 the Labour have not looked after the NHS either. Like I'm not, it's not a party political thing, but you have to compel your politicians to not destroy it. And you touched on your experiences of healthcare systems around the world. And to go back to your halo a little bit, you have worked in, in many different, you've worked in disaster zones and you've, you've seen all sorts of different systems of health. And I wonder, as a junior doctor working in Darfur, was it as a junior doctor? What does that do to you, to your sense of understanding healthcare and to your sense of, I guess, your own emotions and your relationship to sadness when you see so much else going on around you? That's such an interesting question. I almost never get asked about it because I because I'm larking about on children's TV the whole time with Chris, and so that's the, the thing I'm sort of known for. But really, academically, that's my main interest, and that was my career for a long time, and I still work on those issues now. So there is a version of the story where, as a junior doctor, I went to work. I I, I trained in tropical medicine. I trained in in crisis and disaster management, and then I went to Sudan which was having a uh, civil war and insurrection, but really, I think, legitimately a genocide in its westernmost province, Darfur. And so I went as a doctor and saved lives and was one of the sort of heroic, you know, Doctors Without Borders. I was actually working for Doctors of the World, but I mean, similar organisations, but I was one of those people. And there is a big halo around that work, I think correctly, largely. I mean, going, going to bear witness to these atrocities is important, but... The main thing I saw, which took me years to unpick, was that we were co-opted into the genocide by the Sudanese government. So we were part of the problem. And that was the thing I think that is most striking to me. So for instance, we set up a hospital. People came from hundreds of miles around to get healthcare from us, but also food from Oxfam, 
education from Save the Children. UNICEF were distributing non-food items. We made a displaced persons camp, a bit like a refugee camp. No one had left the country, so they weren't refugees. But effectively, it's a big camp of the kind of thing that you see on the TV. And that was where the care was provided. The camp was a, a place of humanitarian aid. So, you know, I was there helping malnourished children, treating people with malaria, all these things. And you could see the lives you saved. But... The government, it was about 250,000 people in that camp. For security reasons, it got surrounded by a fence with barbed wire. And then the government kicked out the NGOs. And we had, I'm simplifying the story a bit, but we had basically helped them make a concentration camp. Then they invited the NGOs back to make smaller camps. They called peace camps or salam camps that were sort of rebranded smaller concentration camps. And aid as a weapon, so a classic use of aid would be put aid in the middle of the desert and everyone goes to the aid and you've displaced people, you've moved them around, you've destroyed their homes. Governments like the Ethiopians were very good at it in the 80s. Um, The Sudanese are probably the best government in the world at using aid to do harm to people. And you can do the two things at the same time, right? I can save a malnourished child and feel like a hero and come back and tell my story and also have been deeply complicit in appalling atrocities. And that's the mess. And I, I feel like that is so valuable in terms of understanding the sort of narrative around medicine in general, right? It's very easy to say healthcare workers are heroes and then to lose, I would say in America, they tell a story, doctors are heroes, nurses are heroes, and yet the overall system is abusive. It creates addiction. It does inappropriate care. It does harm through care. Mainly it excludes people with severe illness who need treatment. It also bankrupts people. Every hospital in America employs bailiffs. So if you get cancer, they'll come and take your house. You know, they'll come and take your telly off the wall. Most middle-class American families are one serious illness away from bankruptcy. That's a proper healthcare stat in America. How do you hold all that in your head? Well, I think that's where, that's why, I mean, I'm sort of, you know, we're sort of joking about the heroic narrative and things like this. And I I do, I have to say, of all the people in the NHS, I do think nurses have a kind of special, if you spend a lot of time with nurses working, you're like, wow, these are people who just, they want to care for people and they are incredible at it. And they are doing complex work and they are not paid or treated as well as other members of the team. But I would say, yeah, in general, doctors have been good at telling a story that they do a brilliant job and they are not always, we should do better at being advocates for our patients in terms of things like, you know, most people are ill because of the environment they live in. And I think doctors need to be alive to that. It is essentially a political job. And I think sometimes we're we're uncomfortable saying that. I don't, I don't mean party politics. I mean, the people who's, who you see are ill because of their housing or their employment opportunities or their education. And that is part of the advocacy. And if you don't look at the bigger picture, you, you, you risk neglecting the most important stuff. OK. And I wonder, with I guess a sort of cynicism, cynicism must develop when you are trying your best to do this work and then you are experiencing that actually so much of it is, feels like it's out of your control and that it is political. How do you, how do you kind of go on in a way that you're trying to be helpful with the knowledge that some things feel fairly futile? Yeah, I mean, if I think of, I mean, A&E, I think the A&E doctors have a, you know, A&E staff in general have really see that that acute thing where they went into A&E partly because it's exciting dealing with the moment of crisis. But after you see overdose after overdose, injury related to drugs and alcohol over and over and over again, these sort of moments where drink driving, all these sorts of things. And you go, my goodness, I wish I worked in public health. But then the public health doctors or the public health 
you know, workers are often thinking, oh, this is really overwhelming. I'd rather just deal with the exact moment when someone needs help. And you see it in, you see it in, in humanitarian work as well. Like people want, I want to go and work in an emergency in Darfur. And you suddenly end up going, oh, actually, I just want to advocate for human rights across the world. But the human rights workers often end up going, oh, this is a bit much. I can't change the world. Let me just go and help people in a crisis. So I think sometimes people just vacillate. But I suppose service and activism, like saying, look, there is a that there is a you as an individual can acknowledge there is some maybe not futility, but often you can talk to a patient and go, look, we are going to send you home now, but there are bigger issues that we're not able to address. And that's difficult for both of us. And that conversation can be quite nice for everybody. But also, you can then be an activist to try and change the world for the better in other ways. I mean, I um, even in things like the way in which, you know, the booze companies are a nice example of like how much medical research they pay for to persuade you that red wine's good for your health. It's just bollocks. It's all rubbish. And so resisting that stuff is quite you know, it's maybe straightforward, but you can try and do a bit of that as a, but that's, I haven't got a perfect solution, but I think in general, trying to change the world is quite like, I feel like you're, I, I would imagine you're someone who you have seen a problem and kind of filled a gap in the world with your book in a way that most people I think feel intimidated to do. But do you have that sense about yourself that you maybe went, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put something into the world that will try and Make it a better place. That's very kind. You're wincing I, now. I do. No, no, no. It's because I'm British and was raised Catholic. Therefore, I am unable to accept that compliment. But I think um, I have an issue where what I write, and I live in Denmark, and I'm very kind of pro the the Nordic model and the idea of, oh, yeah, I don't know, helping helping other people, those less fortunate. But a lot of what I write is is very much championed by right-wing press in, because of a message of, well, you can just fix it yourself. And that's not what I'm trying to say. So that's frustrating, but... I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, but that's so... Because I have this argument, I write in the Daily Mail, you know, occasionally, and I do... People get annoyed when you write for the Daily Mail. The conversation that I have with the health editor, I think the Daily Mail health section is one of the best health sections of any newspaper in the world in terms of its detail and the quality of the articles. Sure, some of it's a bit bananas, but most, you know, some a lot of medical journals are a bit bananas as well. But that personal responsibility argument is something that doctors can easily get on board with, and 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 it is quite a, it's quite a sort of right wing, uh, perhaps not a very, it's not a very rich understanding of the problems that people face. It's funny you mentioned being Catholic. I didn't know that. I worked at a Jesuit university for a long time, and I, I, I was raised an Anglican, so I always thought, you know, I think if you, I never thought I had an anti-Catholic prejudice until I worked at Catholic <gasps> and university and me. went. Ugh. No, they drip, but they, they, there is, we, I think in the UK, there is a thing where you think, oh, the Roman church, you know, they're back. Ever since Henry VIII, we've sort of, you know, the Pope telling us what to do, whatever. And it was such a lovely, you know, it was called Fordham University in New York, and it was an amazing university because the idea of service, everyone in charge, the Jesuits, had taken a vow of poverty, and service was built into the idea for the students and the staff in a way that felt profoundly meaningful and it was sort of ingrained in people's faith but I really liked it I was really impressed but I don't is that I mean that's I don't know if that's the sense you got from your Catholic upbringing or what it means to you now but I was I was really impressed with it I don't know what sense I got frankly but I think there's definitely something I was speaking to um the journalist Yomi Adegoke about a sense of doing good but doing it privately that was you know showing off was so frowned on growing up Catholic which is hard because now if you want to do anything you kind of have to be a part of promoting it so that feels terribly awkward and yeah 
But I wanted to ask you whether in terms of service and activism, whether because it can seem as though there's a bit of a a disconnect between working in crisis zones and kids TV and sneezing paint out of your nose. And I wonder whether there is actually then a red thread because you're trying to educate and start earlier with kids who perhaps are more receptive to a different way of living. It's funny you met, you mentioned the sneezing, that sneezing episode, which was one of the first things we, we filmed for Operation Out 10, 10 years ago, is something that no, we presented that at the Royal College of Infectious Disease. My brother gave a lecture on it and no one in the room knew it. So when you sneeze, I don't, I, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but because I, I promise you a room full of doctors wouldn't know this either. But when you sneeze, what makes you sneeze and what does the sneeze do to solve the problem, if you like? Like when you cough, you clear your throat. What does the sneeze do? What does it do? I guess it wants to get rid of what's in your nose. Perfect. And so you sneeze and it blasts the stuff out of your nose, right? So when you sneeze, if you sneeze sort of unconsciously or spontaneously and you're not trying to control your sneeze, your entire sneeze comes out your mouth. But the tickle is in your nose, right? Right. So you can direct a sneeze out your nose if you think about it. But most of the time, if you sneeze, it's just a spray out your mouth. So there's very few medical papers written about this because... These simple things only occur to you when you're making kids. Now telly. my nose itches. But yeah, yeah. So w- what happens is when you're when you're sneezing, you're you're stimulating pressure receptors in the back of your nose that increase mucus flow. And so if you sneeze ten times in a row, if you've got a real itch, you go a chew a chew a chew. If you wait thirty seconds to a minute, your nose will start streaming, and sneezes stimulate your nose to wash itself with mucus. And so this film—I mean, it's totally disgusting. But this film, we were sneezing paint all over these can, or like edible paint all over these canvases. And then you could see this clear mucus pouring out of our noses at the end of it. But that's how a sneeze works. And most doctors do not know that. So, um, but yeah, I think there is maybe less, there's less tension than there might seem between working in war zones and work, working in kids' telly. But kids' TV, Operation Ouch, is the only thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm so lucky to do it. It's the only thing where at the end of the day, I feel clean. Like I feel like we put something good into the world and we didn't harm anyone. And and knock on wood, that'll keep going. But it feels like such a, it's not just me. I mean, the team that make it are extraordinary. We get a huge amount of help. I mean, Chris and I are very lucky that we've had the same people for 10 years really working on it. But it does feel like a nice thing to put into the world. Does that, I mean, I know that sounds a bit, anyway, that is true. That's how I feel. No, it's nice. I think that's lovely. I think that's what lots of people would aspire to something where you don't have any ambiguity. You're like, I you're, I did a good thing and I'm happy with this. And, it's good. And yeah. I never felt that way working in refugee camps. That was true. Not to say it's not worthwhile, but there's, there's an ethical muddle there that is much harder to make your way through. I have a seven-year-old and I have four-year-old twins. So I'm also interested, this is how I know my operation out a little, but also I'm interested <laughs> in growing up as a twin and having another sibling, having another brother. What dynamic is that like? Does the other brother feel left out how does it work growing up such a good question so what tell me are your twins your, what what have you have you got boys and they're, girls they're fraternal so boy girl twins i think so we were horrible to our little brother not possibly because we we're twins possibly just older brothers but we were really mean to him when we were little and it must have broken my parents heart like i think i would find it impossible to watch kids being mean to each other and then suddenly we all just started to get along really well. And I don't quite know how we did it. I'm trying to think if, I, if any of this is useful to you. Um, it all seemed... So I lived with my little brother when I moved to New York. I have a son who lives in Canada. So I moved to New York to be nearer my son. And I lived with my little brother for eight years, who's not my little brother anymore. Like he's two years younger than me. He's a fully fledged adult with a wife and kids and a job. And he's taller than me. 
and we just get along really well. So I think in the end, it's the sort of thing that you can worry about as a patient, uh, as a parent rather, and it <laughs> makes no. I don't, I don't think it. I don't think it matters. Like I don't. I think my mother worried a lot about us being twins and made sure that we were in separate classes and all sorts of things like this that were different. We wore different colours and different clothes. And I think none of it really made a lot. My mother did lots of things right, but I think it was all a, a lot of anxiety for her that was probably unnecessary. I don't think you should worry. I think you're probably a very good parent and your children are all doing... That's my guess is... Well adjusted. It's all fine. There's nothing specific to worry about. I'm interested that you lived with your brother for eight years and his family. How How did that go? I guess I moved there when I was 30. So I, I was having a child with someone who I didn't really know at all. I mean, I knew them a tiny bit, but but I got a phone call from North Korea saying you're going to have a baby. And so that was all quite stressful. And so we we sort of figured out how we were going to do it. And I moved to New York so that I could go and see my son who lives in Western Canada kind of on weekends and shorter trips like that. And so when I moved in with my younger brother, he was like, he had a girlfriend and we had another roommate and it was really fun. And we were all in our early thirties and it was great. And by the time I moved out, he was married and there was, I think, I think his baby was on the way and it was all, <laughs> like everything changed. And so it was nice. So I sort of left as they were getting their family started, but it was, it's like how many adults get to live with their siblings through that strange, like your thirties, everything changes. It was so I don't know. I feel so lucky that I got to sort of get to, you know, I knew him well, but I mean, he's living in another country. I feel very lucky about it. That means that your parents did lots of good things, right? That's good. And how how oh, no, have I you think found... they should get the credit. Yeah, they should. They get the halos. How have you found parenting and how have you found it being now very far from your son? That has been the the really much more than, for me personally, much more than getting ill or anything like that. The, 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 the worst bit by, by a million miles has been not seeing my son. So by the time, if I can see him this summer and the Canadians have not really got their act together with the vaccine programme, so it may yet be that this does not happen. But if I can see him this summer, it would have been a year since I last saw him. And that's, I mean, it's normally, oh, it's just really rubbish. Oh, I'm so sorry, Zant. What's odd is that we have this, um, we do have a relationship where we expect to miss each other. That's sort of built in. I used to try and sort of be jolly about it. Like when we said goodbye at the airports, I'd try and be jolly. And then there was one time he looked a bit gloomy. Maybe he was sort of five or so and I was leaving again. And I sort of, <laughs> um, I knelt down to sort of reassure. And I was going to be like, I'm the grown up. And I, I thought, well, if I set the mood, then that'll be okay. And I knelt down and said, what I meant to say was, everything's going to be fine. I'll be back to you in a few weeks. You're going to have a, a brilliant time while I'm away. Don't worry about it. And I just, but even now I'm like welling up, but I burst into tears and just sort of started hugging him and his jacket was getting wet. And then I spoke to his mum later on from the from the other side of the, the security in the airport. And she said, oh no, he was just upset because he, I think he'd forgotten his toy at the airport or something. There was something that was not, he just didn't really know why I was so upset. And behind, in Calgary Airport, there's a there's an emotional support dog that wanders around behind security. It's a Sheltie, or it was then. And I said to the lady, oh, can I pet your dog? Just because I like dogs, I didn't feel that I needed this necessarily. And then I sat on the floor and held the dog and cried. And she was really not. And I was like, I was embarrassed, but I could also see it was an absurd scene. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And she said, everyone does this, don't worry. You know, I think airports are full of people just having a, an emotional time on Christmas Eve I phoned him and we had he's 12 so it's hard to chat to a 12 year old sometimes on the phone and 
we're always sort of figuring it out because he's, you know, as he gets older, the topics change and things like this. And we just managed to have one of those lovely conversations. He was playing video games. I was tidying in my house. And we just hung out on the phone for a couple of hours and just talked about, I don't know, just nonsense. Not I wasn't asking him about how his piano practice is going or what books he's reading. I was just talking to him about video games and telling him stories from my childhood. And he was telling me stories from school and getting annoyed that the level he was stuck on, would whatever. It was just a nice hangout. And I put down the phone and was on, and that weird moment that I think everyone's had all year of like closing the computer and going, vroom, I'm back in my house on my own. And that ruined Christmas. That was just, and I, and the year before he'd been with me for Christmas with his other dad and his mom and his little brother, and we'd had so much fun. Oh, it was miserable. So, but I don't know, what do you do about that? Like, I just feel sad. And then you think the only sort of, act, like the only active bit of parenting that I've, done about that is said to him you know i i love you and i miss you and it's not i'm not not he's old he understands that i'm not not seeing him because i don't want to see him but just because there are rules in place and it's impossible what do you think i mean is there anything no i think that's good i think i just tell him i feel sad I, yeah. but also that's that's love isn't it that's that's why you're sad because you love him that's that's only a good thing it just hurts just hurts sometimes i think so i think that's how it I hope he, it's it's funny, he, he's not, um, kids, I mean, I was not at 12. I think it's quite hard at 12 to talk about your emotions with your dad sometimes. And we've had conversations where he's been crying and I, I've sort of said, oh, well, you know, you can tell me anything. And he, he, get, he said, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know, I can't say because I don't know. And I thought, oh, that's all right, that's common. And that's the <laughs> that's teenage what... emotions starting, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as somebody who grew up with without a dad, and the dad who did not say that he loved anyone, you are saying that you love him. That's You're doing all the good stuff. I hope so. I have a lot of guilt. You can imagine that we have a sort of impossible... He's in a lovely... You know, his stepdad's amazing. His mother's wonderful. His little brother's lovely. He lives in a happy home. Like, it's so nice. And yet they're very... I'm dad as well. That when I'm there, I'm dad. And we all mess along. And he calls both of us dad. Um, so he... he does, And he, he is never conceded that this is not a sensible approach and that we should have different names. So he's he's always called me dad and his other dad's called Ken, but he always calls Ken dad as well, since he was five, I guess, four or five. And so if we're in the same room together, he'll go, dad. And we both turn around. He goes, no, no, dad. And we're like, yeah, we're both dad. And he goes, dad who lives in London. Oh, and I'll be yes. like, all right. And he'll ask me a thing. Or he'll go, dad who lives in Calgary. But he's not, so many <laughs> he's symbols. got no shorthand. He's got no shorthand. And, I'm, and we're always like, why don't you call me like pa and him dad or one of us dada or daddy or something. You do something with it. But anyway, he's never he's choice. never felt the need to have a hierarchy of dads, which is very lovely of him. I'm sure some instinct in him realises that the way around anyone feeling secondary is to just have this element of confusion, which is quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. And I think, so you have been very good I mean just in in our conversation right now but in, in other things I've heard you do of being honest about your emotions and you know admitting when you're feeling a little teary and I wonder whether you you did a documentary for for Horizon a few years back on male suicide and and I've written a little about the importance of of men I guess having role models of people who are honest about their emotions and reaching out for help and saying when when we need help is that something that's always been quite important for you? No actually I think I notice now, like, I don't want to cry on your pot. Like, it's difficult. Like, I definitely am trying. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but, like, talking about, it's funny. I'd sort of, I, I didn't, talking about Julian always catches me by surprise because I'm, 
it's essentially very joyful and, and happy having a, having a son, even if it's a slightly difficult situation, but it does make me tearful. And I guess since he was, I think maybe lots of parents find this, but like I just cry a lot. Maybe I'm getting older. There's probably all sorts of things, but I just find now, like maybe when I was 25, I cried once a year, if at all. And now you probably catch me crying once a week. You know? And sometimes it is that thing of going, oh, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm crying. I think the last year has been has been bad for so. Many. I suspect lots of people have found that over the last year, but I think it's it's difficult to. Um, th- when I made that program, lots of people about male suicide. Lots of people said men need to talk about their feelings, and I sort of thought, gosh, this is a lot to put on someone who's already feeling down. That you've then got to articulate this stuff that's potentially. At best, it's comp- It's very hard to say what your emotions are. You sort of go, like, I, I would sort of say, like, I have a lump in my throat and I, I can describe the physical feeling, but going, what's going on in my brain? It's quite complicated sometimes. So I think that the male role models who are good, I think, are able to accompany their their friends or, you know, that, that kind of thing of sitting with someone and going, well, I'll, I'll be here with you. And you don't you don't have to... You, know, you don't have to communicate everything you're feeling to, to your friend, but sometimes they can just know enough to pick up a phone and have a chat with you about some nonsense. I don't feel very expert about any of this the way that you are. I think you, I find sadness a really interesting thing because I don't have a theory of sadness in the way that you do. And so I'm basically, I think the central thing of going, if you are struggling, whether it's sadness or whatever that those sort of bad feelings are, talking to other people usually is is a pretty good route, isn't it? Does that seem right to you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but I agree that especially for people who perhaps didn't grow up with the vocabulary or or are not used to articulating it, then I can see, yes, that, that would be an extra struggle. So yes, certainly sitting with somebody in their sadness is, would just feel so comforting and is so nourishing. I, I was interested in um, in your podcast with Kimberly about you talked about the vagus nerve with the killer line of what happens oh. in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. But I, I, oh. she she was great at kind of explaining, of course, the kind of the psychological and then you're bringing in the medical aspect of of when we are feeling low or the impact that that has on our mood, which I have not explained well. Can you explain the vagus nerve, please, for anyone who isn't familiar? Wow. Okay. So, so the first thing I should say is that when we came up with the idea of doing a podcast about the vagus nerve. I was like, well, this is great. This is like a very medical one. So I know all about the vagus nerve because you have to learn the anatomy. And then I realized that I didn't know the anatomy of the vagus nerve because it's famously complicated with multiple branches. And then I realized that I didn't know what the vagus nerve did. (laughs) Really, I'm going to say at all. Um, I mean, I sort of knew that if if you could stretch or stimulate your vagus nerve, you would slow your heart a bit. Beyond that... I was really stuck. So it was a very funny phone call, like the first planning meeting. I was like, well, here's the thing about the vagus nerve. Oh, wait, I, <laughs> I don't know what, like classic, that sort of doctor arrogance that I try and avoid. But occasionally I'm like, well, actually, I spent six years at medical school and I know all about it. And I didn't know anything at all. So the, the vagus nerve is called, it's the wandering nerve. And so that the course of it is very complicated. It does a lot of things. But what was lovely was getting the sense that your brain is gathering information from all over your body in ways that are not simply when you touch a hot thing or a cold thing, when you taste a certain sensation or when you see things, that there is your senses are putting information into your brain. But in fact, your brain needs to gather information about your heart and your bloodstream and your 
gut and the levels of hormones going around your body. And your vagus nerve is quite involved in that. And so we interviewed someone who had epilepsy and had a vagal nerve stimulator, and they were able to say what it felt like to really give this big, complex nerve that doesn't do any of the things that we normally think about nerves, right? It's not just about pain or temperature and what it felt like in their brain when their vagus nerve was given a jolt, which is really extraordinary. I mean, that's just not a thing that you could, when I was at medical school, you couldn't, there was no one in the world that could tell you what the sensation of having information come into your brain when your vagus nerve was. The picture I think that I got from that, which was really helpful, was that your emotions, I think I I would have divided the emotions up quite clearly into sort of happy, sad, anxious, those excited, those sorts of things. And perhaps that those distinctions are not as useful as initially that they might seem in everyday life. And when Chris and I did a live show of Operation Ouch, we would talk about managing negative emotions and we would end the show um, with a, Chris would put a stethoscope on my chest, which we had a microphone in, and we could hear my heart rate. And we'd do breathing exercises, and you could hear my heart rate slow down. And we talked to the kids in the audience about feeling their pulse and doing the breathing, and they could take charge of their negative emotions. And a psychologist came to meet us at the stage door and said, it was lovely, he said, nice show. Could you just say emotions, not negative emotions? That all these things are very muddled up. Excitement and anxiety are very close together. And that laughter and, you know, watching a horror film, you're often laughing. And she just said, why don't you just strip that out and let people interpret their own emotions? And I thought, that's quite good. That was maybe the vagus nerve episode sort of reinforced that thing of going, God, there's a lot pouring into your brain that you can't, you don't really know what, you don't know where it's all coming from, you know. There's so much culturally, you know, in East Asian cultures, there's there's less of a sense that the that the extroverted, upbeat idea of kind of jazz hands, Disney happy is what we should be aiming for. So that it's more accepted that you can feel happy and sad at the same time and that more introverted expressions of contentment and joy and and, you know, and sadness are all okay. So I guess that fits into what that psychologist was saying. I don't, I don't know how much you, you talk about this in the book. That idea of people occasionally enjoying a bit of a wallow, that there is a poignant melancholy, almost like an aesthetic thing of going... Well, you know, it's raining and I'm on my own and I'm going to go for a walk in the rain and contemplate stuff. And it's sort of quite close to enjoyment. There for sure. There's a, in, in Portuguese, there's a, a term sudaji. And in Brazil, this is huge, this idea of the a happiness of remembering times past or happiness is lost. And it's this kind of bittersweet melancholy. So it would be listening to music that... You know that just makes you, oh, and maybe after you, you know, spoken to your son on the on the phone, you'd look at all, you'd look at photographs, and it's that bittersweet pleasure that you know it's pain, but it's beauty and and joy at the same time. So yeah, for sure there are things like that. It's yeah, they're lovely, and fado music in Portuguese as well is good. That there's there's a particular because it's it's definitely true, isn't it? That if you if you're unhappy, you don't want to listen to happy music. You kind of want. Uh, something that fits the mood and it's not I mean I'm saying wallowing like there are definitely moments where I'm I indulge myself a bit but also there is a, a leg- as you say a legitimate thing of going it, it feels that it's not a performance of sadness that it's okay to kind of lean into it a bit in some way yeah and, and actually sad mood can act as a companion in your sadness a bit like sitting with a sad friend it's it would feel inappropriate to have something I love Van Halen's Jump is my go-to song. But when you're feeling really low, you can't go straight for Jump. You've got to, you know, ramp up there. But So what do you do then? When you are feeling low, what helps you now? 
Well, there are a couple of, okay, so there, well, that's interesting. What do I do? I mean, I think there's probably, there's probably sort of a, a, a good version and a bad version. So when I'm feeling low in that way that you have a genuine, not about a specific thing, you know, I'm not missing my son or I'm not frustrated about a piece of work or that sort of really bleak, sincere pessimism. You know, I, I behave quite pathologically. I mean, I suppose I'm lucky that booze and drugs are not my go-to, but food, you know, I'll order a big takeaway and sit and watch telly all evening and sit still and just sort of do everything that I know is bad and reinforcing. And and I think sometimes it's okay to let myself off the hook with that. But in general, I would say over the last year, there has been a pattern of quite pathological ways of dealing with feeling down. Like that sort of superficial, like, I'll just feel better if I eat a big meal and watch telly, which is obviously not actually sensible. My healthy, the things that I would love if I was my friend or brother, I would say there are nicer things to do. So over the last year, over the last few years, I've done more pottery, but over the last year, I've really got into doing pottery. And pottery is sort of the opposite of eating in front of the telly. Like it is it is mindful. You have to be deeply present. Uh, it's completely absorbing. Uh, like my pottery is not good, but you do end up with a thing. What have I got? I'm trying to see if I can show. Oh, well, I just had a bowl of that. That's like a bowl that I've made. So it looks like a bowl, right? I mean, it does. It's not an amazingly beautiful bowl, but it has a, a foot ring and it's not. That just happens to be there. I quite. Oh, that's a sake bottle I made. That's probably one of the better things. Actually, it's quite hard to. to so I'm holding it up to you. You can see. So I have a. So I bought a wheel. So let me. Okay. So so it's a it's a bottle. The the, the difficult thing is to make a bottle with a narrow enough neck that you can't get your finger inside so it looks like a teardrop with a narrow opening and it's a to me I made it with the intention of it being a sake bottle there are lots of problems with it it's not a perfect bottle but uh, but it was probably the best thing that I could do so pottery and also you're into poetry is that right I like reading poetry and I think sometimes poetry is quite a good way at least for me poetry seems enigmatic enough that it's sort of open to interpretation. You can make of it what you want. You know, my reading of a poem might be totally different to yours, but I can make it legitimate to me. And also that it is, it's that funny thing of being vague and hard to understand, but also clear about certain things in a way that you go, oh, well, that's sort of the emotion I was going for, but I could never have put it. I think poetry shows you how hard it is to communicate your emotions, that you kind of go, well, look, if someone like, I'm trying to think, like, my, my favourite poet is a guy called James Fenton, who was a sort of war journalist, theatre critic and poet. You know, he's he's a genius. You know, how could I ever articulate my emotions that well? Do you know what I mean? Like, of course I can't articulate my emotions. I'm not I'm not the Oxford I'm not James professor Fenton, of English yeah. literature. <laughs> but, but I can show you sort of here, or like W.H. Auden, I think uh, I love his stuff as well. Auden's got an amazing poem where he talks about he was professor of English literature at Oxford and he the sort of the flagship job and he um, professor of poetry. And when he got the job, he thought everyone would love him because he'd been living in America and then he moved back to England and, and he was writing poetry and everyone, he thought everyone's going to be so happy to have him at Oxford and he's so great at poetry. And um, everyone just thought he was a show off and a dilettante and, a, and a, found him annoying. He wasn't a proper academic. And he wrote this poem called There Will Be No Peace about all the people that hate you. And when you're in the, in the middle of the night and you're lying awake, you can imagine all the people that just resent you oh, and no. think you're annoying. And it really captures that feeling of like, oh, no, like no matter how much I try, I'm a people pleaser. 
And I think probably Auden, I don't know how much he was, but I mean, at least he wanted people to like his poems. And so if you're a people pleaser, it's quite a good antidote to going, look, don't worry about it. You can be as nice as you want. There'll still be people who hate you. And how do, how do you handle that in terms of, you know, having a profile and doing stuff on telly, that there will always be people who love you, there'll always be people who hate you. Does that hurt? Or do you have strategies to cope? You know, I don't ever really think about it. I tried to have a conversation about it with my brother. So I, when I was living in America, a lot of my telly career I, I did while I lived in America. So I'd fly home, make Operation Ouch or make a Horizon, you know, make a show for Channel 4. I'd fly back to America when nobody watched any of it. So I was an academic at a Jesuit university in, in New York, and then I would come back to England. And But the more I came back, the more I'd noticed that, you know, a family on the train would stop me and want, want a selfie with their kids or something like that. And I said to Chris, oh, like, you have to do this every day. Like, this is quite odd. And he just wouldn't engage with it. He was like, just don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You're not, it's not, it's not important. Like, don't think about it. And my experience of being me is just that everything's normal. And no one, I don't think anyone really, you know, occasionally children want to say hello or have a selfie. Occasionally someone in the supermarket will go, what's in your basket? You're always telling us to be healthy. What are you buying? Which I quite like, I quite like, it's so confrontational. And invariably I've got five pints of Ben and Jerry's or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I've been very lucky that I just don't think I live a life that's in any way interesting to the tabloids. I'm, I'm never out getting drunk in the middle of town or anything like that. So I'm sort of, it's all quite easy, really. I don't feel like I have to think about that. So my twin brother, if you've got a twin, it just keeps you honest. Like you just, if you've got a twin, there'll be no way that I could do any sort of showboating or being like, well, no, I'm rather a big deal. And it's like, well, no, of course not. There's always someone better known than you. And Chris would never let me do that. So everyone should get a twin. This is the take home. It's good to have a twin <laughs> because you can't lie to your twin. You can't pretend you're someone you're not in front of your twin. It, it would be too embarrassing. It's a good thing to live by. And I like to end by asking everyone what advice you would give to your 21-year-old self, knowing what you do now about how to be sad better. I think at 21, I spent a lot of time trying to avoid being sad, particularly in relationships, in romantic relationships, but also in friendships, I'd say. But, but really in romantic relationships, either trying to avoid getting dumped or trying to avoid breaking up with somebody because I didn't want that horrible, painful sadness for me or, or for them. And in fact, looking back, you sort of go, look, everyone recovers. It's not that big of a deal breaking up with somebody. I mean, it can be like heartbreak is very real and awful. But um, with 20 years of distance between me and that time of my life, I think I would go, it's OK, you will recover. Get on with it. If this isn't a good relationship that's working for you, then then end it and end it nicely and um, be honest about how you feel. And if someone breaks up with you, you don't have to be obsessed with pretending that you're happy and your dignity and all these things. Just say, I'm really heartbroken and that's really bad for me. I was terribly, terribly bad at doing that when I was, I'm not brilliant at it now, but I feel like I've got a little bit better. That is very good advice. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care. <laughs>